The following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. I may not look like it, but I try to get some cardio by playing basketball regularly, and even though I'm well into my 40s now, uh, one thing I've come to realize is that the older you get, the more common it is to see men my age like popping Advil like candy. <laughs> and um, I know one guy who, who takes four Advils before he plays basketball and right after he plays basketball. And he's a big believer in like, taking preemptive measures against pain. And, you know, modern medicine has allowed us this luxury. And I think this now is just a part of our culture, right? You know, back when Kim was in the hospital when she was sick, she would often be asked to communicate her pain level to the nurses there. And she was given this chart. You may be familiar with it if you've been in the hospital. And it's to help the medical staff kind of understand what her tolerance level is at, you know, and what they needed to give her to relieve the pain that she's feeling in that moment. And, you know, they were very sensitive to how she was feeling and wanted to provide whatever immediate comfort they could. And we view pain as one of the greatest enemies of our lives, I think, especially in America, right? When we experience it, often our first and only thought is, how do I get rid of this? And no one questions you if you take every measure to do this, right? I mean, when a mother has a baby nowadays it seems like you get more strange looks when you don't take the epidural, right, versus taking it. And I believe the Bible offers a very different response to pain, though. And by pain, I don't just mean the sensation of pain, but these seasons of pain and suffering that we experience that are often defined as trials. The Bible doesn't tell us to remove it at all costs or ignore that it's there. The Bible doesn't even tell us to grin and bear it. Rather, God's word tells us to rejoice in these difficult seasons. And it seems to make no sense. And yet, when we look into the Bible, we see just that. We see joy in the midst of trials, in the midst of pain and suffering. We see Paul and Silas singing hymns in the darkness of a Roman prison cell. We see Peter and the apostles being beaten by the Sanhedrin for preaching the gospel and then rejoicing and going right back and, and doing it again. We see James choosing to stay in Jerusalem and pastor that church despite all the intense persecution. This is also foreign to us. But I'm convinced that we struggle to rejoice in our trials because we don't fully understand God's purpose in it. Our ignorance of how God uses trials in our lives can cause us grief. It can cause us bitterness instead of joy. So this morning, we're going to look into why the Bible says we are to rejoice in our sufferings and what it means to be joyful in our trials. And our text this morning comes from James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Only three verses today. It says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. 
Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that even in the midst of our trials, Lord, we can rejoice, we can find joy, even though it goes so against our thinking and even our flesh. And so, Lord, by the power of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit, just give us understanding, we pray, into this text and to the truths that you desire us to know and to live. It's in your Son's name we pray. So James is the author of this letter, and this is uh, thought to be James, the half-brother of Jesus. And I think it would be very easy to dismiss the text that we just read here as coming from a pastor who's out of touch with reality, right? This is being just nothing more than just spiritual talk. Consider it pure joy. But you'd only think this if you didn't know the background of James and the church that he led. You know, he was one of the most influential leaders of the early church. And he held the unique distinction of being the pastor of the first Christian church in Jerusalem. You know, this is someone who witnessed and experienced intense suffering himself. In fact, the very reason why he was writing to Jews that were um, scattered all over the broader region was because they had left Jerusalem, and they'd been scattered all throughout due to the intense persecution that they endured while living in Jerusalem. James loved these people, and his heart went out to them as they tried to create new lives for themselves in these distant and often hostile lands. And persecution and hardship was not just something that was in their past, but it was something that they endured every day. As followers of Jesus, this was now their way of life. So James was not offering up these words in a trite way. These words were full of empathy, full of his own experiential knowledge. He, he knew very well what they faced. And yet still, he writes these words. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. James is saying something mind-boggling. You know, it seems disingenuous at best or delusional at worst, right? He's not calling on God's people to protect their joy in the midst of their trials. He's actually saying that trial, the trials themselves are a reason for joy. And notice it's not just certain trials. It's trials of many kinds. Big ones, small ones, easy ones, hard ones. They're all reason for joy in, our, in his eyes. And obviously this is a view that is very different from the world. What James is saying here deserves deeper reflection. The Bible is not making light of our pain or the troubles that we face. You know, as we shared last week when we spoke on depression, there's, there's always room for us to express grief and sadness before God. But here James is simply making a point. The trials have a deeper purpose than what we recognize or what we appreciate. And they are a cause for joy. And in his typically direct fashion, James wastes no time in explaining what that purpose is. In the very next verse, he tells us why we should consider trials as joy. He says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, 
not lacking anything. Within this purpose, James unveils a process. It's a process that begins with what James calls testing. And through this testing, we are told that we grow in perseverance. But even that is not the ultimate end goal here. It is in the persevering through trials that we are brought to complete maturity. And we'll get to what James is describing when he speaks of maturity in a moment, but I want to first define what he means in this very first step of this process, testing. I don't know about you, but when I hear the word testing, it it doesn't usher up positive thoughts for me. To me, testing is just a crude way of trying to assess how much someone knows or doesn't know or what someone can do or they can't do. It's nothing more than just a way of trying to size someone up. Is that all God is up to here when he sends us trials? To measure our faith, to evaluate our spirituality, to assess our maturity? No, I don't think so. That's not it at all. This is not like a testing or a test that you see in a classroom in which a teacher is trying to measure how much you know and grade you accordingly. God is not operating from a lack of knowledge as if sending us trials will somehow inform him of something he doesn't know about us. God already knows. The truth is this word testing is very different from the way we use and understand it. It's a fairly rare Greek word in the Bible, and it's only found twice in the Greek translation of the Old Testament and once in the New Testament. In Psalms 12:6, we see it translated in the ESV as the word purified. The word of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground. Purified. Tested. Purified. Seven times. In Proverbs 27, 21, we see it again referring to this purification process. Again, in the refining of precious metals. The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the man is tested by his praise. And so, more than the way we understand the word testing, I think the word purified or refined gives us a better word picture here. The Apostle Peter also picks up on this metaphor to encourage believers who are also enduring intense persecution and suffering when he writes this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, we're to rejoice in various trials, which are a a testing or rather a refining of our faith. Because God is doing something here. This refining of a precious metal, such as gold or silver, is is a powerful picture of the painstaking process of bringing something immensely beautiful out of something that is not. You need to begin by mining the ore, right? There's really nothing remarkable about an ore of gold. This one's actually a, a really good specimen. But it essentially looks like an ordinary slab of rock. 
But if you look closely enough, you'll see inside that rock are thin linings of gold, right, embedded inside. And after you've broken up the, the rock and mined the ore, the refining process is basically completed in three steps, right? The first step is to pulverize the ore into a fine powder. And after it goes through multiple washings so that all the non-metallic elements are removed, what's left is then collected and put into a furnace. And it's here that the gold ore is heated to temperatures approaching 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And something remarkable happens when the ore completely melts. The intense heat causes all the impurities to, within the gold to rise to the top making it easy for the refiner to, to skim these impurities off the top of that molten metal. And this process is repeated and repeated until the gold is completely pure. We can find joy even in our trials because God is using them for a greater purpose. What is that greater purpose? To refine our faith. To purify us so that we might shine forth something glorious, something beautiful. You know, a story is told of a group of women that met for Bible study while studying the book of Malachi, chapter 3. They came across the verse, verse 3. It says, He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver which puzzled the women, and they wondered how this statement applied to the character and to the nature of God. So one of the women offered to find out more about the process of refining silver and to get back to the group at their next Bible studies. The following week, the woman called up a silversmith, and she made an appointment to watch him while he worked. And she didn't mention anything about the reason for her interest, just beyond her curiosity about the process of refining silver. And as she watched the silversmith work, he held a piece of silver over the fire and he let it heat up. He explained that in refining silver, no one needed to hold the silver, or one needed to hold the silver in the middle of the fire, where the flames were the hottest, so as to burn away all the impurities. The woman thought about God holding us in such a hot spot. Then she thought again about the verse that he sits as a refiner and purifier of silver. And she asked the silversmith if it was true that he had to sit there in front of the fire the entire time that the silver was being refined. And the man answered, yes. Not only did he have to sit there holding the silver, but he had to keep his eyes on it the entire time it was in the fire. It required patient work under his careful and experienced hands. And the woman was silent for a moment. And she asked the silversmith, but how do you know when the silver is fully refined? And he smiled at her and answered, Oh, that's easy. When I see my image in it. First Peter says this, In this you rejoice, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation, the revealing of Jesus Christ. When we are refined, our image becomes the image of Christ when we are refined by God's hands. That's what's revealed, Christ in us. God allows trials to enter our lives because through them, he refines his image in us. 
we become a more perfect reflection of him. And when we, by faith, embrace this as God's purpose, we can find the strength to persevere. And not just persevere, persevere with joy. So we know that one of the main purposes of trials is to refine us into the image of Christ. But how does this actually happen? James says that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work. God allows trials to enter our lives, but it is up to us to respond to it. We can respond with a determination to endure, or we can respond by giving up. This is the one role we have in this process, to press on and to press ahead by faith, to trust that even in the midst of my trials and my pain, I will hold fast to the truth that God has not forgotten me. He has not forsaken me. He loves me, and he's doing a work in me and for me that serves a greater plan and a purpose for my life and for his glory. You know, a few years ago, I came across an article written by Sal Khan. He's the founder of Khan Academy. You guys may be familiar with it if you have kids. We force our kids to watch a lot of those tutorials. But it's one of the largest free online educational libraries with all these like YouTube tutorials on like nearly every subject known to man. And in this article, he makes an observation about how the human brain grows. And it struck me. And he wrote this. He says, my five-year-old son has just started reading. And every night, we lie on his bed and he reads a short book to me. And inevitably, he'll hit a word that he has trouble with. Last night, the word was gratefully. He eventually got it after a very fairly painful minute. He then said, Dad, aren't you glad how I struggled with that word? I think I could feel my brain growing. And I smiled. My son was now verbalizing the telltale signs of a growth mindset. But this wasn't by accident. Recently, I put into practice research I had been reading about the past few years. I decided to praise my son, not when he succeeded at things that he was already good at, but when he persevered with things that he found difficult. I stressed to him that by struggling, your brain grows. Between the deep body of research on the field of learning mindsets and this personal experience with my son, I'm more convinced now than ever that mindsets toward learning could matter more than anything else we teach. He's saying, reaching your greatest potential mentally does not happen when you repeat easy tasks or just by memorizing information. It comes from persevering through difficult things. It comes through struggling and failing and doing this over and over and over again. He's saying growth comes from persevering. And what is true of our minds is also true of our spirit. When we persevere with things that we find difficult, we we grow. When we push through trials, we mature. When we endure hardships, we are being made complete. And I appreciate how Sal Khan, you know, he frames this all within the context of a father who loves his son, who wants what's best for him. And he knows that the best way to train and grow his son is to flourish, was to lead him not down an easier path, 
but one that would stretch him and challenge him and try his patience. This is the love of a father. This is the love of God. We don't always have a say on what trials come into our lives, right? Or when they come into our lives. But we do have a say on how we respond to them. And we can respond as a child of faith, knowing and trusting that our Father knows what's best for us. And this is how we find the strength to persevere. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God's desire is that we might be mature and complete. So much so that he will use trials to make this happen. But what does it mean to be mature and complete? Is the goal here to become a fully functioning adult? Or a contributing member of society? Or a a model leader of the church? No, what James is speaking of when he says mature and complete, not lacking anything, is a spiritual transformation in me that ultimately results in a more perfect picture of Christ. This is the ultimate beauty that all believers are called to aspire to. And what we learn is that God is working on us towards that end, and he uses trials to do it. Now, I know most of us don't wake up in the morning thinking like, you know, I hope God will make me more like Jesus today. And I hope he'll use whatever means necessary to get me there. Because the truth is we'd rather think about what we can get for ourselves before we think about how we can actually change ourselves, right? But I do think in our more honest moments, all of us do have this profound desire to be better and to be more than what we are. And life has a way of showing us that we are in need of changing. And the older we get and the more stages of life that we go through, the more glaring this becomes, right? We see it when we struggle to find peace in our marriage. We see it when we lose our temper with our children. We see it in the way that we treat our coworkers in ways that we wouldn't want to be treated. Every day we come face to face with this, this gap between who we are and who we should be. But James tells us that we can consider it pure joy when we face trials because God is using those trials to bring about that change in us that our heart longs for. You know, I'm not an expert on psychology, but when I read the last part of this verse, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. It, it reminded me of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You, know, you may be familiar with this hierarchy in, in the form of this five-level pyramid in which Abraham Maslow famously theorized that we all have these innate needs, Right? that we as humans commonly share. And his belief was that our psychological health and our ultimate happiness was based on fulfilling each of these needs within these levels of priority. And the lowest and the most basic need shown as the base of this pyramid being our physiological needs. That's our need for food and for water and shelter. And the next level up being our safety needs, our our need for security and self-protection. And after these basic needs, Maslow said that we encounter our need for love and for belonging, these relational needs, this need to be in deep and meaningful relationships with others. 
And then above that is our esteem needs, which are defined as our need to feel honored and to have a sense of accomplishment in our lives. But the last and the highest level need is defined as self-actualization. When all other needs are met, when nothing else is lacking, our highest and our greatest pursuit, according to Maslow, the pinnacle of our existence is to self-actualize, to achieve our fullest potential as human beings. Maslow believed that after we become undistracted from ensuring that our more basic needs are met, and our highest need and our greatest innate desire is to achieve our fullest potential, to be the absolute best person that I can be. And I think in some ways you see this played out among the wealthy, right? When you have lots of money, you can afford to meet all of your basic needs, and then some. But it it doesn't take long before you realize that money cannot buy you happiness. And I think this is why so many wealthy go on to pursue other more altruistic endeavors, like starting foundations or doing humanitarian work. And I believe this is a quest for self-actualization. In humanistic psychology, this is how you might define someone as being mature and complete. You've reached the apex of the pyramid, the top of the hierarchy of needs. You lack nothing. But what's fascinating to me is that Maslow went on to paint a portrait of what this ideal, self-actualized person looks like in his book, Motivation and Personality. And this is how he saw some of their defining characteristics. I want to read them for, some of them for you. One, they share deep relationships with a few, but also feel identification and affection towards the entire human race. Two, they prioritize and enjoy the journey, not just the destination. Three, they're not troubled by the small things. Four, self-actualized people embrace the unknown and the ambiguous. Five, they accept themselves together with all their flaws. Six, while they're inherently unconventional, they do not seek to shock or disturb. Seven, self-actualized people resist enculturation. Eight, they're motivated by growth, not by the satisfaction of needs. Nine, self-actualized people are grateful. Ten, they're humble. Eleven, they have purpose. And it seems to me that what Maslow describes as a person who reaches self-actualization actually describes the greatest person who ever existed, Jesus Christ. And to illustrate this, I'm going to read the same list again, but this time list the fruit of the Spirit along with it, along with some other characteristics, and right next to it, which I believe Jesus perfectly exemplified. One, they share deep relationships with the few, but also feel identification and affection towards the entire human race. That, That sounds like the love of Jesus to me. They prioritize and enjoy the journey, not just the destination. That sounds like the joy of the Lord. They're not troubled by the small things. That sounds like being filled with his peace. Self-actualized people embrace the unknown and the ambiguous. This is what gives them patience. They accept themselves together with all their flaws. Obviously, Jesus had no flaws. But even for us as believers, when we can accept ourselves and our flaws, we can show kindness towards others. While they're inherently unconventional, they do not seek to shock or disturb. That sounds like the gentleness of Christ. Self-actualized people resist enculturation, right? They don't just go with the flow or what the culture says. That allows you to be faithful. They're motivated by growth, not by the satisfaction of needs. 
And because of this, you can exercise self-control. Self-actualized people are grateful. They're humble. They have a purpose. They're thankful. They're humble. They're steadfast. And I think Maslow was onto something here, but he fell short of finding the, the, the final answer. Deep down, we all want to reach our greatest potential. We want to be the best person that we can possibly be. But that person is not found in a better version of me. It's found in the best version of everyone. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ. So that is what we want most in this life. But how does God get us there? He uses trials. He calls us to persevere. But in the end, growing in Christ-likeness is not even a function of our own perseverance or the commitment of our own pursuit. Yes, perseverance is an important step in that growth process, but the fruit of the Spirit can really only grow in someone by the work of the Spirit. God himself does this work in us. Look at what Paul says when he describes the character growth process in Romans 5. He says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our, our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Like James, Paul calls on God's people to rejoice in their sufferings because it produces endurance, which is really just another way of saying perseverance, which then produces character, which is just another way of saying Christ-likeness or the fruit of the Spirit. But notice how Paul finishes this thought. He says, character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. All of this is ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit who gives us the faith to believe, the strength to persevere, the hope to press on, the power to change. And Paul says, in the midst of our trials and in our darkest moments, we are to hold on to hope. Hope that God has not forgotten us. A hope that God sees us in our pain and has not forsaken us. A hope that God does love us, even though based on the circumstances, it may seem and it may feel like he's turned his face away. Paul says, in this process, if we hold on to this hope, we will not be disappointed. We won't look like fools for hoping. God won't put us to shame for looking upward when we're down and out. In fact, it is in these exact moments of brokenness that God's love comes pouring down upon us, revealing himself in ways that we've never seen and drawing close in ways that we've never felt and changing us in ways that we could never imagine. God allows trials to enter into our lives because through them he refines his image in us and through that refining he reveals his love to us. God uses trials to reveal his love to us. This is a reason for joy. This is why we can rejoice. It is in and through these trials that God reveals himself to us and grants us a deeper understanding of his great love.
for us. So what does joy in the midst of trials look like in the life of a believer? And and how do we find joy in the midst of it? I I just want to close today by giving you two recent examples of this, I think, in our own church. Uh, As many of you know, we just shared earlier, we've been praying for baby Enora, you know, Agi and Naomi's nine-month-old daughter, uh, for a couple weeks now. And the doctors could not figure out what was wrong with her and what was causing you know, all these fevers, and until this past week, you know, they didn't know, and, she, and then now she's finally diagnosed with HLH, which is a very serious, life-threatening autoimmune disease, and, you know, as you heard, she's not out of the woods yet, but um, the prognosis, you know, is not horrible, right? It can be treated, and so just please continue to pray for them. But, you know, when, when um, my wife and I visited Aggie and Naomi in the hospital, you know, I was just so encouraged by just seeing Naomi and just, uh, just seeing her face, you know. And um, just seeing, you know, their faith in the midst of this unexpected trial. And you can only imagine, this is their first child. I mean, they, they dote on her so much. And, you know, for someone that young, their only child, to to not know what, even what's wrong, what's happening in her body. And, and I asked Naomi earlier this week if, if there's anything she could share, you know, as a particular blessing and reasons for joy in the midst of this trial. And she said this, she wrote this, she said, we have had our fair share of tears and even fear through this process, but we've really felt God's presence through all of this. And one of the main ways has been through the support of our families and ICC. There were a few, a few times we received bad news and were overwhelmed and not even able to think about food, but people from ICC had already offered to bring food, and it came just in time and was such a blessing. And we've been able to find joy because every step of the way we feel like God has been right here with us, providing for all of our needs. My mom lost her job this summer, which may seem like a bad thing, but this has made her available to stay with me on the days that Augie has to work. And Augie has been able to take some time off work even though he's just started this new job and, and the days that he has been here have been the days that he was most needed to be here so we could walk through some of the scarier moments together. So many people have been sending us messages and praying for our whole family and God has really used this to remind us that we are not alone. And it has been a whirlwind and the most difficult few weeks we have ever faced. But I know we are coming out on the other side with an even greater understanding of God and his great love for us. And in that, we can find joy. I love the way she says that. We're coming out on the other side with an even greater understanding of God and his great love for us. And in that, we can find joy. Hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts the Holy Spirit. Let me close with one last example. Um, as many of you know, our brother Charles Chen was also suddenly afflicted with an autoimmune disease earlier this summer, which left him bedridden with a very bleak prognosis. And even in the midst of his trial, you know, by faith, Charlie allowed us to share in his sufferings, sharing his prayer requests, giving us updates as he persevered through it as best as he could. 
And as you know, he was miraculously healed almost as quickly as he, as he became sick, confounding his doctors, right? And I shared his written testimony um, before, but I want to read one part of it again, which struck me as I was putting together this sermon. He wrote this, There were several days when my inability to walk and obvious lack of coordination caused me to wonder if I will ever be normal again. But the Lord comforted me. And one day last week, my eight-year-old daughter told me that she dreamt that we were eating lunch and she saw Jesus come by, knocking on the door through the backyard. She was the first to see him, and we all got to personally meet Jesus. And Jesus told her that everything is going to be okay. Charlie shared that this, this was one defining moment in the midst of his darkest days where he deeply sensed the love of God through his eight-year-old daughter, through that little dream. And I don't know why, but the, the little, that little detail of Jesus coming in through the back door just kind of stuck with me. He didn't come in through the front door, as we might expect. He came knocking through the back door. And I think that's a profound picture of how God often shows up in our lives. Not through the door that we expect, right? Through blessings, but through the back door. That is through our trials. And this is exactly why we can rejoice in our trials, because we know that in the midst of our trials that we come to really sense his nearness and truly see his love. And we are being changed because of it. Let's bow our heads together. And when trials enter our lives, it's so easy to immediately want to blame God or be bitter towards God. And in our anger or grief, just exclaim, God, what, what are you doing? Why have you brought this into my life? But if by faith we can see that our God is a loving Father who has a greater purpose for our trials, who loves us and desires to pour His love into us through the Holy Spirit, then the question is no longer... God, what are you doing? The question becomes, God, what are you trying to teach me? God, how are you trying to change me? God, how are you revealing yourself to me? His hope will not put us to shame if our hope is in him.